Today we continue our summer remix series, um, and we started this last week, and basically we said uh, we've been doing this now for almost 10 years, and I've been the primary communicator in this role for, for almost that entire, that entire time, actually. Um, so we're going to reach back into the archives and remix uh, one of our favorites. There was a couple of qualifications on which ones were available uh, for me to kind of do that. I like not available, like somebody said that you can't do anything else. This is just for me, selection process, but um, I wanted it to be at least four years old because I wanted it to be um, something that was far enough in the distance where it, it didn't feel too recent. And I wanted it to be something that I vividly remember as good. And so um, that's been, and typically we teach in series. I'm not doing an entire series. I'm just picking one talk from uh, some of the series, some of my favorite series, some of the favorite talks from my favorite series. So you're getting like the best of the best. Um, this is the all-star edition uh, of, of Eastlake. So you logged in. If this is your first time, you picked a great time to come check this out. So in October of 2013, uh, so this is seven, almost seven years ago. We sent out mailers into the community um, and highlighting uh, a series called Making Lemonade, um, Making Sense of Suffering When Life Hands You Lemons. Um, we also had several different taglines on. It was very colorful. It was um, a guy named Ryan who's got just, he's like tatted out and just a good looking dude. And he's got these lemons everywhere. It was a great, colorful, very fun look. And um in the in the kind of text on it was one of our most successful really mailers in terms of first time guest numbers and part of it was something about you know if, yeah you have like the little paragraphs that kind of illustrate what you're talking about in the series or with like a summary statement or whatever it was like something about has life has it ever felt like life is kicking you in the lemons and you just need to make sense of suffering a little bit something like that and then we had this um, this tagline too um, where it was a social media Instagram was like I think like just getting going or maybe it was still even just Twitter I don't remember but um, take a picture of you with all of, with lemons and then say hashtag show me your lemons which is controversial and you got to be careful when you search that now because it's been a few years uh, but we were the first ones to kind of do that we made sure that that was a safe hashtag. I cannot vouch for it anymore. Um, and it was uh, it was a fun kind of like I don't know stupid deal. We bought hundreds of lemons, and um, we were setting up and tearing down at Southridge, and we set these lemons out on the stage on barrels as kind of like you know trying to create this sense of purpose and intentionality in terms of our stage design because we're not really we don't we don't typically do any of that for any sort of series churches some churches do we just have not if there's any sort of stage design it's probably because there was a play in here like the night before and then it just got left over um so we bought a bunch of them and what we failed to factor in for this series it's fun insider fact this is kind of behind the scenes things um the series that we decided to do was six weeks in length and we decided to not store the lemons in like a fridge or, um, you know, some sort of relatively temperature controlled setting. We stored them in our trailer, which was basically outdoor storage. And they were fine for like week two and week three. But like by week four, um, we were having to like... Um, they, were, they were starting to get moldy and nasty, and yet we'd spent all this money on them, and, and we, we didn't want like you to come and not feel a sense of con- continuity within the series. So we had to like start moving the the, uh, the the lemons, like shifting them around, so that like the brown fuzzies would be on the backside, and then only the nice nice stuff would be on on the front. And it started to smell like by week, week by the fifth week, they didn't even look like lemons anymore. It was more like limes. Um, and at this point, there's such a fermentation smell. It smelled like we just got finished dusting, and now we're going to do church. That's what it smelled like for a while. And uh, 
I remember by week five, a guy in the church, I won't mention his name because uh, there's some stuff in there about it, but came up to us and said, hey, what's your plans for these lemons after you're done with them? And I was like, dude, they're going, I wish I could throw them away now, but I feel bad because they need to be part of the series, but we refuse to buy more because we're not going to do that. We're not going to be wasteful. And he goes, do you mind if I take them off your hands? And I said, what are you going to do with rotting lemons? And he said, I have this like distillation process that I can distill them and make some sort of, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't even want to guess at what he, he was making with it. Right. Um, and so uh, I said, absolutely. You're like you're doing us a favor when you take these off of our hands. And so uh, story goes on. We, we go, we're like several months, six months removed from that series probably. So this is probably spring of 2014. And uh, I remember coming up to, to the guy and saying, Hey, how did the, that ever turn out? Like whatever turned out. And he smiled at me like this big old smile, like this, like uh, uh, mischievous, like think of my kid. If you've ever met either of my boys, that kind of a smile. And he goes, it tastes like pure gasoline. That's <laughs> what he said. It was like a, a line from uh, Anchorman or something like that. Um, and then I, I, we both had a good laugh about it. And then the next week at Southridge, I get out to my car after service and there is a mason jar full of this yellowish liquid on the top of my car. And I can vouch for you that I still have it. My plan was to bring it this morning and pull it out at this moment and just show you, show it to you. But um, it's still sits uh, in uh, this certain cabinet uh, in my house, and uh, I've never opened the mason jar. At, I know I've, I've, I've opened the jar to smell it, and I've never, I promise you, never taken a sip in my life. In fact, the only reason why I keep it around is because I was like stripping the paint off the front door like a, few, like a year ago, and it really came into uh, to, to form there for me. So a uh, little backstory of, of making lemonade. Anyways, it has nothing to do with my talk today. I just thought it was a really funny story that I've always wanted to tell, and it's, it's there if you ever want to come over and taste pure gasoline. Anyways, um, the point of the series was essentially a discussion on suffering. I had read through a a book recently at that time called The Problem of Pain, which is C.S. Lewis's take on um, pain and suffering and and very academic in in approach to it. Um, And yet there was like a a quote that was really famous um, that you've probably seen cross-stitch at your grandma's house or on a photo somewhere with a beach behind it or or something like that. Um, But the quote comes from his book, and and it really talks about how uh, what we go through in suffering shapes a little bit about who we are and God's role in suffering. Here's Here's the quote from it. Here's the logistics of how it plays out. Pain insists on being attended to. Like, you can't ignore pain, right? Um, you know this if you're dealing with physical affliction or, or, or mental affliction or whatever. There's like a, it insists on being attended to. You cannot ignore me. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, uh, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I loved the, the, the way that that thing flowed. I loved, I remember reading it for the first time and, and just, it, it has a flow. He was such an, an amazing writer. Like when you see those kind of people, um, there's just a way that they say it that just like, that's the best way you could say it, right? Um, you guys just recently did, um, if you logged in early, you did the uh, Mad Libs with the Hamilton stuff that my wife did. My wife and I recently sat down and, and watched it as she mentioned on the video and, um, when it comes to that, like Lin-Manuel, his writing has this like flow of words to it as well. And I uh, recently attempted to 
uh, sing uh, or like, you know, you're like making coffee in the morning and like the words come out for the intro song. And I, I'm so embarrassed to even say, I, I, I say, I sang it wrong. I, I did, the flow was wrong. Listen, I'm white. I've got four kids. I live in Pasco. I'm not the guy to be singing Hamilton songs, right? And we know that. But like the attempt is there and the desire is there. Anyways, I'm singing it and I say it. I say the flow absolutely wrong and I butcher the entire thing. I, I, I thought about saying what I did, but I'm, I think I'm going to pass on it. Um, to which my wife, I look over at her and she is just head on the counter, just like shaking her head like, no, no, that is not it. And it got to the point where now it's so funny um, that I intentionally do it and say it wrong so that it just bothers her. And it got to the point the other day where I said it and um, she said to me, knowing how big of a fan I am of C.S. Lewis and not even really knowing that we were going to be talking about the series. She goes, God speaks softly to us in our joy. He talks through our thoughts. And, and I, I said, don't you dare utter that blasphemy, right? She, I knew what she was doing in that way. She's, I'm, I'm challenging her hero and she's doing mine. Um, so I, I really shut down that blasphemy, um, almost immediately. Um, but back to this, um, this idea that pain insists on being attended to, that it cannot be ignored, that pain is a, a useful tool. It's something that shapes us, it grows us, it does whatever. Um, three obviously takes in here. He whispers to us in our pleasures. Um, there's a decent chance that right now, maybe not right now because of COVID, but like up to like six months ago or whatever, there's a decent chance that you are making more money now in your career than you ever have before. That might not be true for everybody, but for a lot of people, it's true. You've never been at this job longer. You transferred, you moved here, you did this, you, you, you just graduated, you just got education, you, you, you're now, um, you just got out of college and, and now you're, you're, you're not paying to like go to school. You're actually making money or you just got out of high school and you're, you're doing that. Anyways, there's a decent chance that you're more on track right now with your career or moving forward in life or I'm getting married or I bought my first car or I bought my first home or I did, I, I'm doing something that's like progressing in the sort of life worldview progress that I'm looking forward to or whatever. Um, suffering for us in uh, our scenario is, is kind of non-existent. We wouldn't say that, but like really it's suffering as it stands um, on the spectrum of kind of like human suffering historically is almost non-existent. Like for us, suffering is the fact that in our second year of our contract with DirecTV, it's like $400 for TV, right? That's like, I'm suffering with that. Suffering is Denny's making me meet, eat outside uh, on tables that are brought outside like an, an what am I, an animal? Um, so we don't really, um, we don't really understand it. And, and uh, so in those times, in our pleasures, the concept that he's saying here is pain, like is almost non-existent. It's not really even that loud. It's just unfortunate or whatever. He does speak to us in our conscience. And by that, he means that we're aware of uh, oftentimes suffering on a global level or we'll watch some sort of a documentary or we'll watch something about either climate change or social injustice issues or systemic racism or something like that. And something is happening in the world and it's not necessarily related to us, although we find ourselves, you know, in the middle of that. And, and, uh, and so, and, and out of that, we get this 
ought sense, like uh, th- that ought not to be, or there should be a better way, or we need to do better, or whatever. And God speaks to us in sort of our conscience in, in that way. Like we hear this voice. It's not like overpowering for us, but the reason I feel so opinionated on this is because I'm coming at it from a religious angle, a religious conviction. My faith, you would say, my faith, my personal faith, uh, requires me to do better. Love requires, love that has been informed by the grace that has been shown to me now requires me to do something different as a result of it. It's not all that, it's not like convicting necessarily. It's convicting, but it's not like intense. There's a lower level of intensity uh, than that, right? Um, We read about natural disasters in developing countries who don't have the infrastructure to rebound quickly. We talk about charity water, which um, Mallory mentioned in the video, like if you're a first time guest watching this and you let us know that you're here, We'll donate money to charity water. We pick that one specifically because uh, their their marketing is fantastic, but not just their marketing, like what they're doing um, is so like, uh, it's so easy to get on board with it, whether or not you're religious or not. The reason we do drinks for drinks in that way is because it's such an easy, we think people need to have access to clean water. Like that's just, when you can't survive on something for more than three days, that feels like a necessity that just is um, uh, important for everybody. So anyways, all of those things uh, are important to us, but unless we're right in the middle of something, our concerns about suffering are philosophical and political sometimes at best. But in the third kind of category of this, God shouts to us in our pain, but when it's our pain, but when it's our depression, when it's our chronic illness that is finally setting in, when it affects us personally, all of the sudden our speech oftentimes becomes littered in God talk, or all of a sudden we begin to hear the voice of God with a different level of clarity than otherwise we wouldn't have. This is oftentimes when we do some serious soul searching. Uh, this summer we had a guy come over and do some remodel work at our, at our house. His name's Daniel. He attends East Lake here. And, and as he's working, he would take a break every day at noon to facilitate an AA call, um, an AA meeting through, um, because they can't do the meetings live. He would do it over, um, Zoom or FaceTime or some sort of, I don't know what app they were using, but, um, he'd be eating his lunch in our bathroom and, uh, or wherever in the house, I guess, but, and having all of these people begin to talk about where they're at and how long they've been clean and whatever. And it was, it was littered with God language because you had a lot of people who are struggling with addiction and coming to a growing sense of an awareness of their own faults. And I, you know, I've blamed so many other people for this, but now I'm taking ownership of my own mess and I'm realizing that God has something or a higher power, like some of them higher power has something better for me as a result of this. And you see this, like when it becomes real for them, um, we are so much more open to hearing the voice of God, the voice of reason, the voice of a higher power, something along those lines. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Um, And the book is fantastic, but uh, it is, again, academic a little bit and philosophically. But what's interesting about Lewis is there's an evolution in in his writing about pain because he writes that sort of early in his kind of Christian writing career. Uh, And then he goes through this process where he eventually gets married to someone who uh, has a chronic um, uh, illness and eventually passes away. And then he writes on the side of this is somebody who's affected 
corrected me. I'm treating this as a theoretical subject. And now in a book called A Grief Observed, he's like, I'm writing this as somebody who now has to go to the morgue, now has to set up funeral plans, now has to figure out life uh, without this person that I've cared for so much. This book, A Grief Observed, is very dark. It's very questioning. It's very doubtful in his faith. It's almost like, is this the same guy who like three years ago published this book about how God, you know, uses pain to rouse a deaf world. And now he's going through it and he's like, are you even there? I'm knocking and it doesn't feel like anybody's opening the door. It feels like there is no door in this way. It's very millennial. You would love it. Um, there's plenty of stories of people who um, have stopped being religious when their reality didn't match up with their expectations. And maybe that's been your story. So as much as we read Lewis's quote in Problem of Pain and say, um, you know, it rouses the deaf world. It moves people more towards him. Pain is this thing that moves people towards him. We also see in A Grief Observed how pain pushes people away from or allows people the space to be able to push away from a belief in God. I used to believe in God, but then I saw too many things in my life that just, I just can't see how a good God could whatever, right? And so the reality is that it is a polarizing subject. It can either push people in or push people away. And I don't know what your background is and I don't know what your history is, or I don't know what that friend or neighbor or whoever who's coming to you with like all, like their life is a mess and they're coming to you because you're kind of a churchy person or the churchiest person they know or a faith person. They don't want to talk to a pastor, but maybe they talk to you and, and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. And if you, or maybe it's a loved one or a kid and they're going through so much stuff and it's like driving them away and you, and you you're good. That's not right. It should be driving them more towards you. And that's the, the reaction, you know, that's the thing that you're pushing for. And it's just, it's interesting. Just as many people find God through affliction as suffering, as find reasons to question his existence. Just as many people find God through affliction as, as suffering, uh, and as find reason to question his existence. This is a, just a truth in this way. It kind of can work both ways. In troubled times, people sometimes wake up to their fragility, and that can either cause them to go to something that they can find secure or just kind of deal with this fragility in life. Now, I say all of this because it sets the precedent and sets the backdrop uh, and the context for a text that we're going to look at in the book of First Peter today. Um, there's a, a group of letters, they call them the uh, apostolic letters in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, you've got different categories of books, right? You've got like the life and history of Jesus and the four gospels. You've got Paul's letters to his church, which is more like him as a denominational leader trying to manage this new organization. And then you've got a couple of letters towards the end that are pastors writing letters to their specific churches um, that are more intimate, they're more personal, they're less organizational like Paul and mandating doctrine, and they're more like, this issue is what's at stake in our community. This is what we're going through. Um, so Hebrews operates a, a little bit like that. James really does operate like that. The letters of Peter, the letters of John, the first and second, third John, uh, kind of operate in that way. So they are personal. We're almost, we're looking over the shoulder. When it's, when you read these, it's a lot of times harder to read these as like a devotional sort of um, what do I do with this? Because we aren't doing, we aren't going through the same things that James is going through or, or the people that were in relationship with James or, or Peter. So we have to kind of look over their shoulder and be like, what's their context? And then how does that play out for us? And in, in the context of First Peter, what you have is this church located in the central heart of the empire, which is the city of Rome, which has gone through some massive um, ups and downs in terms of good emperors, bad emperors. And at the time of the writing, Emperor Nero's in place, which is historically bad from a secular standpoint 
as, as a religious standpoint, he was a terrible emperor. He, um, he questioned all, everybody around him. He would kill people who, um, uh, who were in potential, you know, could potentially take over for him. Just massive distrust of everybody, including family members. He was, uh, he was, uh, he was, uh, just an, a, a incredibly, um, difficult to be around and did not run a very successful empire. At one point in his um, rule, in his tenure or whatever, there's a great fire that breaks out in Rome. It destroys all but four um, kind of sectors or boroughs of Rome at that time. Conveniently, his home is not affected by it, um, which led a lot of people to believe that he's trying to use this fire to rebuild a city that had kind of grown too fast and didn't have the infrastructure in place. But in, as a result of this fire, he then begins to try and find people to blame this thing on. And he selects a group of Christians um, who, at this point, is a young, fledgling religion. It's not even that big, but apparently it's big enough to earn an option as somebody to be kind of a scapegoat for this fire, um, which is so interesting because... We know that this fire didn't happen too much after the birth, or the, sorry, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the early church in its early forms is so incredibly small, but it must have grown at such an explosive rate that at just a few years after this whole thing started, it's a big enough group where Nero can publicly, and now I'm not saying from a Bible, this, we don't get that information from Bible. We get it from kind of secular history. We see that Nero right, blames this and writes this off as the activity of Christians who are trying to be um, against the, the, the Roman Empire, rebel against it or whatever. But think about the impact that this must have had. If that is a legitimate thing that he can go public with, what does that say about the size of the Christian church at that time? I mean, imagine something terrible taking place, <laughs> I don't know, in, our, in, our, in, the, in the U.S., um, some tragedy. And then uh, President Trump or whoever is in office at the time, um, like, picks out this group of people. And it's like, it's, you know, some, some relatively unknown group. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, those Quakers. And you're like, Quakers? <laughs> They did this? Like, what are you talking about, man? I mean, aren't they busy making oatmeal? What, what are they doing? Why, why in the world would they have any sort of thing here? And how, how could they be big enough and, and well-equipped enough to do any of this? And, and that is a sense in which um, the, the church in Rome finds themselves uh, big enough to get in trouble, but small enough to where they can be easily picked on and nobody's really going to come to their defense in this way. As a result, great persecution breaks out in Rome. Um, it is very, very dangerous to be a Christian if they find out who you were. It's uh, the rumor was that, uh, or the legend goes, that he would um, light his gardens at night with the funeral pyres or um, with burning uh, Christians alive at the stake, um, like human tiki torches. Um, and it was a very um, it was a time in which you you went to great measures to try and avoid identification as a Christian, as a follower of Christ or a follower of the way. Um, they would have like little strategies in terms of how they would identify um, each other. And so that ichthys, that fish that you see that's like the Christian kind of symbol, you thought it was just like something that goes on the back of your car that kind of proves you're anti-Darwin or whatever. I don't know what that means, but... Um, that came as a result of Christians 
trying to speak in code, trying to identify who's safe and who's not safe, um, they would go and uh, talk with somebody. And at some point, if you can, if you thought maybe that this was a fellow believer, you would drop half of the fish in in a, a, the piece of sand, and the other person would know what you're doing and draw the other side. And then that would be an identification marker between the two of you that this was a safe uh, person to go with. So that's how kind of that that's kind of interesting part of history. But um, that is what's going on in this scenario. He's speaking to a church whose persecution is so great, it's literally physically dangerous to be a part of this. And in verse six of his very first chapter, I mean, he, does, he gets right to suffering. The entire book's about suffering. So if you're going through suffering, first Peter's a pretty decent book to read through. But here's what he says in this. In all of this, you greatly rejoice. Here's his command. Here's his pastoral moment. If I had to sit down with you and talk with you and all of this greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Yeah, of course, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, that there is a, a, a point of doing this, that there is um, a, a refining uh, part of what's taking place in this persecution of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. Another, this, this refined by fire sort of language, this forge, this not... Uh, ironic because probably many of them are being um, uh, persecuted for being a part of setting fire to Rome, but this fire is different. This is one of those intense fires that like shapes metal that you put it in until it's red hot and then you can kind of shape it and mold it to become something useful to be used. It may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ uh, is revealed. Um, it is, he's, he's talking about this intensity, this form of of purpose involved in persecution. It's not unique that a religion would, even Christianity or or otherwise, use suffering and persecution or pain as a result of shaping and forming. I mean, that's pretty much true for Buddhism. That's true for uh, Hinduism as well. Like um, all of those, that, that pain that you're going through that shapes you into who you are, a better version of yourself. He's doing this, but he's also kind of drawing in uh, this future moment when that is true. It's not just true in this present. You're be a better person for it now. There's a future element to it that we'll get to uh, in a second. According to Peter's teaching here, the suffering has a purpose. And one of the main ways that we move from abstract knowledge to personal encounter is through the furnace of affliction. This idea, go to that next slide if you would there. Um, one of the main ways we move this from, again, abstract knowledge or yeah, I kind of believe in God. So where it's, he's going, what I've seen is when people go through intense persecution and suffering, that becomes like this personal encounter and it's this furnace of affliction. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, I used to have one of those shirts. Please don't wear it anymore. I, I hope that that's definitely great. But this is the theory that we kind of believe in principle. We sort of believe in principle that when we go through something, we're better for it. Or that is oftentimes the narrative that we sell ourselves on, and let's not take it even personally. We would say when our favorite sports team loses towards the end of the season, 
that's good. I'm glad that they lost. They'll be better for it in the playoffs or some, something along those lines. I'm glad that that happened. I'm glad I didn't get that promotion because I'm going to be, I'm stronger now. Like I'm, I'm more independent. I'm glad that that kind of crap happened in my life. I'm stronger as a result of this is a narrative that oftentimes we sell ourselves. Uh, and so this is whether or not, I mean, I'm saying this, this is what Peter is saying. And instead of just isolating it in sort of like this religious world, I'm, I'm trying to point out that we even do this, uh, with ourselves. Um, and we, we say um, that once we've done that, now we've learned our lesson. Once we've gone through financial problems or bankruptcy or whatever, now we've learned our lesson. We're better for it. Um, and though we might say these things, the reality, here's the pastoral reality for us. It never feels like this. This is always a really positive take. It never feels like this when we're going in it. I've met with enough people who are going through in, you know, very distinct, very measured amounts of pain and affliction. And they, in the moments, don't say this. They have friends who say this to them. You'll be better off for it. But in the moment, it feels more like an interruption in life. We operate as if the material world oftentimes is all there is. And a goal in our material world is happiness and self-fulfillment and personal freedom. And so anything that obstructs us from getting there is simply an interruption to life as it should be. This sucks. I, I, I don't want to be sick. I had so much more life to live, right? I, I don't want this sort of loss. This was, I don't want to mourn this relationship. This was supposed to be, he was supposed to be the one, or um, this is an interruption towards something that's super better for me. Um, suffering now should be avoided in those minds at all costs or minimized to the greatest degree as possible. Suffering is a result of chance misfortune. So again, we can think theoretically, this is shaping us to be better people. But when we're in the middle of it, I'm just telling you, you don't feel it that way. I've met with enough people to be like, it feels, and, and, and it hurts to have other people on the outside say, you're being shaped for it. Because you just, you, you don't want to hear that. It feels like this is just chance misfortune. The reason it feels this way is because we love the illusion of control. Pain and suffering reminds us that we don't have it in life. Pain and suffering reminds us that control and uh, uh, this idea of being able to work things the way that we want to work them or that we're good people, we deserve this good life or good things happen to good people or whatever. Um, this illusion of control hurts uh, or, or is something that we crave so much that when it's not there, it hurts so badly. When pain and suffering come upon us, we, never, we finally see not only that we are not in control of our lives, but that we never were. Pain and suffering remind us of the fragility of life. And my wish for you, as I mentioned seven years ago in this talk, as we went through this entire series of suffering, and that really hasn't changed that much. And maybe I don't even know you. You're watching this and we've never met and you've never been here before. You just found this online or whatever is I really want for you a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, a boatload of community with other people. And then a true sense of life's fragileness or the fragility of life. And it's not that I want you to go through pain and suffering. And I, I do think that sometimes we're better for it. But I think the big ultimate piece of this is it reminds you that you were never in control in the first place. Um, that there is a refining nature to it. 
And as the intensity of the fire grows, so grows the shaping ability of this thing, as Peter would say. But um, a big sense of it is this illusion of control. And how, what better scenario in our world to be dealing with this illusion of control than to be going through a pandemic where we, we feel like everything's been fine. We're all under control. Every year has been sort of like last year and the year before that and the year before that and everything's going to be fine. And then this happens and now everything is up for grabs and everything feels like we were living under an illusion of control and we realize how kind of fragile and delicate this balance of civilization and uh, international trade and all of these things are so delicate and they always have been. We just lose sight of it so often. Pain and suffering on a personal level do that thing for us too. They remind us of this fragility of life. And so in this, I added um, this to this talk because after seven years, I realized I think this is the, the big kind of piece that I missed in, in the first time around on this is I want to offer you a consolation prize. Like, I wish I could say, snap your fingers and all the pain and suffering goes away. Or don't worry, you are in control of everything that happens to you. So, you know, you're fine or whatever. Um, what I'm going to say is going to sound very religious. It's going to sound like what you'd expect from a church, right? But uh, And it feels like a consolation prize in this way. But it's not really a consolation prize, but I can understand how it feels like it. As we mature, I think it feels... When, when, when Peter makes that transition towards the end of, but don't worry, God's in control of it. That, um, that at the end, I don't know that it all makes sense to you, but like God had this plan in place that God's not surprised by anything, uh, that he will make, make anything work as it kind of turns out to be right. And as we mature, I think that that feels less like a consolation prize um, because it kind of, I know it can feel like a cop out and more like finally being able to touch bottom on the river after almost drowning in the current of the Columbia. Have you ever gone for like a river swim and you're swimming towards the shore and you're tired and you're worn out and you're getting weary and you're like, I don't know if I can like, I make it back and it's rushing this way and I can see the beach and I can see people in safety and I, I, I can see the bottom, but it always is further than I'd really think it is. And I reach and I can't touch and I can't touch and I can't touch. And like, you, if you you just keep going, you just keep paddling, and finally your feet touch at the bottom. And as soon as that happens, then the current, the the danger of the current doesn't feel as dangerous anymore. The control, I feel like I'm back in control a little bit. I feel like I'm back in, and I can slowly make my way up. And then I then I reflect, and I'm like, I really enjoyed that swim. I'll go do this again. And while I'm out there paddling, like I'm never gonna do this again. This is so scary, right? Um, that kind of feeling of finally having your foot touch the ground. I think as you mature in life and as you go on, when you hear this phrase, when you hear Peter talk to his people and pastor them in this way and say, don't worry, God's in control of all of this pain and suffering. I know it can feel like a consolation prize, like a whatever. It can feel like a, it's not, that feels like a cop out or whatever. But once you've been down the road of brokenness long enough, even that can sort of feel like that's then finally firm ground for me to recover from. That's enough for me. I don't need it all to make sense. I don't need all the pieces to come together. I don't deserve, I don't want to operate under this illusion of control. That is enough for me. While Christianity never claims to be able to offer a full explanation of all of God's reasons behind every instance of evil and suffering, it does have a final answer to it. 
and Lewis's kind of culmination of this shows up in a book that he wrote about uh, this picture of heaven and making sense of of what comes next or the finality of what it is. And this is, this is his, this is the quote that I want to leave you with or whatever. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Nothing that could come next can make up for the pain that I'm going through personally. The loss of this marriage, the loss of our child, the loss of, you know, this job, this career made one stupid decision. And my life is an absolute mess. And, and no, nothing could happen now that could ever make sense of this. Not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. He's saying that we don't, we don't hold that what comes next. We don't give God enough credit for this. Um, uh, there's another one from um, Tolkien when he writes The Lord of the Rings, how it talks about how time works backwards and makes all the things that made us cry now um, now not hurt as much or not or now make us laugh or everything that was painful now becomes unpainful, gets undone in this way. It's a reverse order in that way. And and that is, if I could t- talk to you just one-on-one with pain and suffering, if I when I'm doing counseling with people or whatever and, and they're coming, it's a lot of times it's listening I'm not trying to tell you God's using this to shape you. He's, you know, he's going to make you, but you're going to be stronger as a result of this. It just doesn't feel like it in that moment. In those moments, it's an interruption. It's a, it's a bummer. It's a thing. It's, it's keeping me from getting happy. So the best case that I could kind of point you to is this talk with Peter when he says, this is a refining fire. It's going to make you better, but you may not realize it in this moment. It may be so far down the road and that's going to feel like, well, that can never, ever be worth it. And that's because we fail to understand how great that that could be. And I think the longer you go on in life, again, it's going to be the firmness of the riverbed as you're making your way back on shore that's going to provide a little sense of stability in that way. So.